Hello everyone, welcome to our reaction pod for Pot of the Dragon. We've watched episode one of House of the Dragon. It's is Lee. I am here with my co-host Spencer. Spencer, we have not talked about it. We watched it in the same presence. We are in yeah. the same room. We're here together. We watched it, the premiere, episode one of the follow-on series to Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. Spencer, what'd you think? That was a solid bit of production. Whoa! Positivity? It was it was very season one kind of style Get in terms of how it was structured. It was well-written. It was well-paced. You already got a sense of the characters and where they're going with them. I'm going to argue again that I think the prophecy at the end is a dumb idea for the series, but that isn't going to take away from the episode itself as being surprisingly well done, surprisingly restrained and paced and plotted out in a way that they're very much like, we've got a new series now. We're going to go at our own pace to get there. I was impressed. Okay. Well, so... I'm stunned because uh, I was just expecting you to come in and be like, I don't like it like you normally do. I give it a solid C minus. <laughs> Liar. Uh, <laughs> look, I, here's the thing. Like, I felt like it was, it was. I'm still kind of collecting my thoughts about it, right? But I felt like it was really good. I liked the acting, the production, the cast. I liked the sets. Um, I liked the CG. I liked so I liked the little differences in the dragons. I liked that Caraxes had a distended neck and had wings at the feet. I liked that you can tell the difference between Caraxes um, and the uh, Rhaenyra's dragon, um, uh, Caraxes. Caraxes. Yeah, um, I don't know how well people are going to do with the names, by the way, of the dragons. Best of luck. I, I could tell or, it. Or characters, as we've already. It's seen. very different to tell. It was very difficult to tell the difference between Daenerys' dragons. Right. It was basically. There were different sizes and different colors, but other than that, they look the same. But these yes. dragons actually physically look different. Oh, yeah. Um, so I thought that was cool. So there's a lot of stuff that I like. I'll tell you my primary concern. My primary concern is that they get a Game of Thrones-like equation. And it's like, let's just set it in Westeros with violence, boobs, intrigue for the throne, dragons. Bam, we got a show. Mm -hmm. Like, I hope that there's more depth to it. I think there will be because mm -hmm. we've read ahead. But I think that there is the potential to just have this sort of formula for Game of Thrones stuff. It's right possible. And they did check those boxes. They, yeah. I, I was a little put off by the gratuitous violence and the gratuitous nudity. I understand that's in the books. I understand that would be in this sort of medieval type world. Mm -hmm. I just feel like just don't overdo all of that stuff. What, what did the actors say? Tits and dragons? Don't don't right. give me too much tits and dragons. We, we joked back in Game of Thrones that, okay, now it's time for the mandatory nudity for HBO standards. <laughs> right, yeah. This did have a couple of that in there. Now, it is appropriate and in text that Damon would hold court in a whorehouse. That sure. is what Damon do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But necessarily seeing Matt Smith's ass gyrating another woman, mm. we can necessarily do without that every episode if we can avoid it. Let's talk about Matt Smith because I think that that is probably the most controversial part of the casting other than the Corliss Valerian him being black, but I do not give a fuck about the fact that he's black, so like I, I don't even really want to address that. Like What I'm interested in is there's so much controversy in casting Matt Smith. First off, yes. you hear people say, I don't want Doctor Who to be David. I don't like that, right? Because mm -hmm. that, that frustrates he, me because... He's an actor. He's an actor. He's going to have previous parts. The beef that I think holds some weight is the weight. <laughs> Is the yes. man I expected this guy to be buff, kicking ass, you, 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 tough on that Dwayne the, the Rock Johnson workout plan, and he is a little strength being. Yeah, the most accomplished warrior in the realm, one of the most dangerous men alive, one of the few truly blooded warriors of this otherwise peaceful age. Matt Smith was main roles I know Matt Smith had are Doctor Who and Prince Philip. Prince Philip was a soldier, but you don't necessarily see him in the physicality of one. So I don't have much of a frame of reference to know that he would bring 
the physicality, or even necessarily the persona of just constant threat of violence that everyone's terrified about with respect to his character. Now, I'm going to ask you, because you brought it up, how did you feel about his performance, episode one? I absolutely loved it. That was one of the strongest parts of the episode to me. Um, when he's fucking with Otto Hightower oh, and the council, God. and he gives that a little smirk, like, fantastic and exactly how I thought Damon would act in the, in the series Small Council, yes. especially towards Otto Hightower. And then I love that he got, like, I love the whole through line. I love that he goes to the tourney and he starts picking on the Hightowers. I like he gets the favor from Allison. Like, mm -hmm. the whole thing is fantastic i think that matt smith is bringing it i would say that like if i was going to do like a power ranking of the actors right now sure i'd have to throw matt smith at the top and the guy who plays corliss valerian under that barely under that he like, did as well, number two because he did very well. that's what i mean because like he didn't get a lot of lines but he commanded a presence and that's what we need from the sea snake right because the sea snake is the number two most powerful person in the entire in all of westeros probably the entire world at this point mm -hmm. and he has to command a room and that motherfucker commands a room when he speaks people like at least i was like kind of thrown back in my seat so i thought he did a fantastic job what'd you think i very much agree i think he did very well with respect to it i like i, w I was one of the ones that was a little bit concerned about uh, the race blind casting with respect to him just because it wouldn't necessarily fit into aspects of the lore and particularly how the families emerged together but i like how much the family and the fact that they are black was just casually worked into the episode the characters are yeah. present there's nothing made particularly about it it's an aspect of changed lore that they're running with, but they seem to be committing to it in a way that this is not just purely race-blind casting, just accept the loss of a certain element of reality. I think that I think that can work fine. The actor himself did beautifully with respect to the role. He had a presence, he had a command. In the small council meetings, like you said, no one spoke over him. Everybody yeah. else was going back and forth. The moment he spoke, with no raising his voice, no well, need to. Well, there was one time, right, when someone, who was it that, I think it was uh, Strong, said you just advocated for damon and when he kind just of, looked at him he turned and looked at him and like, like i was ooh, i think ooh. our entire room was fucking like, shook. i'm sorry i know yeah, i didn't we know were, what i did we were all shook like i think he i think that guy did a great job what? and and i also want to give a shout out to young rhaenyra because I that was actress was really really good she was cast perfectly she really reminds me of daenerys targaryen i love let's talk about like the storytelling i love they start with Tying it, 172 years before Princess, before Daenerys Targaryen, like mm. they, and they even cut out off a lot of that sentence to at the end to focus to on just those words. 172 out, yeah. or whatever the number was, Daenerys Targaryen. Like, yes, here Draw we go. Parallel, this please. is where we are, and it was a, it was a nice callback to Daenerys Targaryen and the work that the uh, that that actress did during Game of Thrones to kind of spur all this because she did give the Targaryen so much context. So much personality. Mm -hmm. uh, shout out Amelia Clark. But uh, I like that they were able to tie that together. One thing I one thing you mentioned, I absolutely loved their intro choice with respect to the Great Council. I love that they portrayed the Great Council, and I love that they did they allowed, allowed Rhaenyra to do the narration with respect to it. Almost like a Galadriel doing the narration at the start of Lord of the Rings. Remember that for Fellowship of the Ring? Yep. I love that little bit of history that's thrown in there. I love the ambiance associated with it, with the beautiful depiction of old Hall in the background. It was a beautiful shot associated with that. So I think that was an excellent choice both to connect the show together in that way, but also put us in just the deep mythos of the history that we're now exploring. One thing I noticed, too, how many parallels there were in this episode to things that we have seen in the original Game of Thrones, but done up and expanded and made bigger with respect to the different era that they were in. We've talked before about the Iron Throne. We got to see it live on the screen and how much more of an impressive edifice that it was. But it wasn't alone. We knew that one best. We got to see the skull of Balerion and 
How much bigger would you say that thing is compared to the one they in terms of the prop they had? Yeah, in the original think show? about think about the skull of Balerion that um, that Arya was sitting in. Like, I, here's yeah. my head kick. Yeah. Here's my head kick. Um, when Robert moved all of the skulls out of into the basement or whatever, they just lost track of which dragon was which. They, they dragon. accidentally broke Balerion. They, so they just took a smaller one. Totally yeah. Balerion. That one. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, it's Caraxes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 yeah, because they obviously made that much bigger. They made the throne much bigger. I love that we got the dragon pit. I what? love that we got the dragon pit workers and how that sort of like administratively works. Like that there's, there's people employed at the dragon pit and their job is to deal with the fucking dragons. That was very cool. <laughs> and learn high Valerian quickly to make it survive very long. Very cool detail there. Uh, we got to see a tournament. You remember, you know, I love season one Game of Thrones, my favorite bit of Game of Thrones, but they had the budget, not even by, you know, like, Main, name brand Kleenex to, to make these episodes happen. So the tournament they did was... You always say that, but they had like... They were spending like three million an episode. Barely even pocket change. Don't even know how they made it even happen. But you remember the tournament. The tournament was purposely parred down. They even talked about in the production of it that we did the best we could with the budget we had. This tournament this is, is a proper tournament. This is a tournament reflecting the budget this show has, and it was beautifully well done, beautifully realized, and delightfully done in parallel, too, because we get the wonderful line from Renera's mother... Uh, she's an Aaron. I still forget what her first name is. I'll, I'll look it up in a minute. Um, but she talks about how, when we heard this back in Game of Thrones proper, that a woman's battlefield is is the um, Bedroom, birthing or, bed. Yeah, bur- yeah, for yeah. Uh, and we got it's where she just, has the baby, but. and we got to see her suffering on the birthing bed and the battle of the tournament directly in parallel to show the respective battles that everyone's playing it and the battles that are being forced upon them as well. And that was beautifully shot in terms of how that was filmed. Now I got to ask you. Did you see any weak spots with respect to the acting in the start in this episode? Was that or are all the performances fairly solid? Yeah, I'm gonna say that they're all pretty solid. I'm, I'm thinking um, none none of them really scream out as being an obvious weakness. I no, I thought the guy who played Viserys played him with a depth that we did not like. I mean, George R. R. Martin's already said this, right? So I'm not breaking new ground, but there's a depth to that character that we certainly did not get in the books. I love the little detail that he makes, like, he, he's creating like a little model King's Landing in it, his bedroom. It, it felt so like middle-aged guy doing a, tr- a model train set in his basement. Which is exactly thing. who Viserys is, right? Yes. He's like, he's not a warrior. Nope. Damon calls him out for that. Mm-hmm. He's like, brother, you're uh, weak. Like, out of love, though. You are, you are weak. Like, you're not, like, you know, I just had a buddy of mine call me and he was like, he hasn't read any of this. And he tells me, you know, I don't like this Viserys actor because he doesn't feel like a Targaryen. He doesn't have that presence. Great. He's doing it perfectly then. <laughs> it's like, I wanted yeah. you to bring this up. This was what I was kind of prompting you to is that he's an actor that I almost feel like people are going to appropriately judge him just based on the idea that he comes across as weak. He comes across as stuttering. He comes across as being constantly put on by those around him. But that's the issue. That's, that's the, the weakness. That's, that's the problem. The threat. He is a peacetime king. He's well-loved. He throws great tournaments. He does great parties. But the duties and responsibilities and the imminent threats of being a king are overwhelming for him. And it's something that he's not fully capable of and is struggling here to find the necessary will and the necessary power to accomplish those responsibilities. And his choice here in this episode is to do the main thing a king is responsible for set the line of succession and get it in well-ordered form. It's the only reason monarchies can justify their existence is that succession is predictable and there is order to government. So, you know, when HBO was going through the process of developing this series, they did a couple of things. First thing is they listened to Martin when Martin said, you have to bring in Ryan Condal, who's basically one of the biggest Song of Ice and Fire fans ever. Mm-hmm. And I think that the presence of Ryan Condal is felt in that episode. I'll give you an example. Please. So, um, when 
the Baratheon comes up during the tourney, and he wants Rainey's hand or mm-hmm. you know his favor. Her favor. Yes. Uh, I want I want Rainey's favor. The queen that never was. Her the queen that never was. Did you see? The pan to basically the the royal family. Yes, and the reaction of everyone in the royal family. There were they all the, the shoulders all hunched. Up. <laughs> there was a, and, and Viserys actually like turned and smirked mm-hmm. as it was said, because that's a that that is good. That's a very difficult thing for all of them to swallow. Even that nickname, the queen that never it, was, it, is a very difficult thing for all of them to, it, to stomach. It was an intentional breach of protocol. That was a purposeful action on Lord Baratheon's part to basically offer a bit of a mild snub to the point that I believe it's Otto Hightower even turns to the king and says, you know, you can cut out his tongue for that, right? To which Viserys, in the most Viserys style, basically just says, eh, let the tongues wag. What should I worry of that? Right. It, I thought it was. I thought the body language. I thought how that was all portrayed mm-hmm. was, was extremely strong. Um, so there was just a bunch of little moments where it was clear to me that they understood the dynamics of the characters, the lore, and the context of which it's all happening. Uh, so I really, really like that. Like really felt, really felt very positive about that. Now, is there anything else you want to talk about with respect to this episode before we jump to the end to the prophecy and where we fight? <sighs> Let's get to the prophecy. Okay. No, I think we need to. It, 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 it is the elephant in the room when it comes to the end of the episode. It is I mean, I, I will give you credit. This is one thing we can go say before we get there. You, sir, predicted like 40% of this episode before it happened, and you need a victory lap with respect to that. What did you call? You called the Great Council at the beginning. You called all of the lords doing the, you know, the pragmatic sanction moment of, uh, of Rhaenyra becoming named the heir and all the lords bowing to her. And here at the end of the episode, you called this prophecy that has been rumored, that has been laid out as a result of a few off comments during interviews as being a thing. You predicted that in this episode, it would be dropped. Right. So Have your victory lap moment. Well, I don't really deserve a victory lap about the prophecy because, I mean, I, I just read online that that was, that that was a rumor. And I thought, well, if it's leaked, then it had to be from the first episode. So I, it wasn't really my, my genius. I'll tell you the only thing that of those three that I really did predict was um, was the Great Council, which uh, and that was and, years and, and, ago, and that was a great that call. It was years ago where I thought they would do the Great Council, and I think that was smart to start that way. So the prophecy. So let's let's summarize exactly. So some people that might have like well, that, some people might have been Rhaenyra. Some people might have been Rhaenyra when they heard that. Yeah. Thought, what the <laughs> fuck was that? Yes. So let's explain. So in essence, what he is saying is that there is a secret that has been passed down directly from Aegon's... From from heir to... King to heir. King to heir, king to heir, directly from Aegon. And it's that when Aegon came over from Valyria, he did not... Well, when when Aegon's family came to Valyria, and when Aegon decided to come to Westeros. Yeah, when Aegon came from Valyria, he did so in part because he... Well, you're you're shaking your hand here. I, I don't, I'm just checking the title on. Was it was it Aegon that came to uh, Dragonstone, or was it his family that came to Dragonstone? I don't know if Aegon was born yet. Yeah, we, we, I but, believe it was Aegon. But it, regardless, they they had a dream about Valeria and you know the doom of Valeria, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But what this introduced is the idea that there was a dream that was had, right? And I, yeah. I couldn't tell from the conversation if they were insinuating that Aegon had had the dream or if some member of his family, right? Because you're, I think you're right that in the books, it was Aegon was just born on Dragonstone. Right. His family had come over before, yeah. but it seemed to indicate that this was like all Aegon's sort of idea, which would indicate that he was the one that came over from Valeria. And they also talked about Valeria, uh, Blair and the Black Dread being from Valeria. So no. I don't, I'm not sure what they're doing in the show, but the point being is they're introducing this idea that 
Westeros was conquered by the Targaryens because they had a dream about the Long Night, the Others, all the shit that we saw in Game of Thrones, and that the prophecy that they had in the dream was that the only way to save all of Westeros, ipso facto humanity, mm -hmm. is for a Targaryen to be on the throne and to unite Westeros to fight against, which is exactly kind of what we saw Danny do with her dragons to defeat the Others. Yes. I don't like it. Okay, we've, uh, we've talked about this. We, this was a rumor that was spreading as a result of a few comments made in interviews, I think even by Condal, actually, in terms of where the comments originally came from, that there was this idea that Aegon Targaryen had a dream, he had a prophecy the way that Targaryens do, that he needed to come over to Westeros because a long night was coming. I like that they didn't explicitly say others... Or anything along those lines that was just... Something was coming from the north. Okay, cold and darkness. So I, I, I can appreciate that ambiguity rather than literally saying the White Walkers are coming. Well, and that, and that more aligns with the book, right? Because this, this term, the Night King, the White Walkers, all that stuff isn't really said in the books. These are point of view characters and it's generally discussed kind of like this. Like, mm -hmm. there's something out there. And this wouldn't be the first time we've had the Targaryens having this element of prophecy. Famously, um, Rhaegar. Re rediscovered the story and the myth of the prince that was promised that he was spending a lot of time in the library he was a very studious kid he had no interest in combat until he found a prophecy came to the master arms and says it seems i must be a warrior because he realized because of some prophecy read that there needed to be a prince that was promised so targaryens have often been linked into this mythos but the data point i just mentioned and this are 160 years apart and Rhaegar was discovering it for the first time. So, one of the issues I have with respect to this theory is, A, I don't know why Aegon would keep it a secret, and that hasn't been explained yet. Maybe they'll go into it. And B, something that they can possibly explain going forward is that clearly the theory needs to be lost. The prophecy has to be lost. Now, these are problems that can be accommodated. They're problems that can be fixed. I have some different structural issues about me not thinking it's necessary, that it's an unnecessary and very purposeful linking between the two shows so that the fan base can have a series further events that they can tie themselves to to better understand motivations or directions of everybody else that I don't feel are necessary and feel a little bit forced. But in terms of just purely structural issues about how I don't think it makes sense, I will give the show time to explain those. I will give the show time to say, explain why Aegon didn't think it'd be actually a rallying cry to say that from the start rather than keep it a secret for some reason. I'll give the show an explanation probably to explain that the Dance of Dragons itself actually kill off anybody who even knew that this was a prophecy, which could be perfectly possible if, Rain if Rhaenyra is the only one that knows about it. Spoilers. Um, and I'm willing to go with respect to that. I don't overall like it because I don't think it's necessary, but I'm willing to let, this, let give the show time to explain some of these factual issues that don't make sense from the things that we have so far. You, on the other hand, actually like the theory from what you've said. Yeah, so let's keep this on our reaction pods, we'll try to keep the spoilers to a minimum, but like, I, I think there is a very easy way that they could lose the prophecy in this story. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Yes. Um, I, I like it for... So here's the thing. Like, so you say, I don't know why Aegon wouldn't just tell everybody. Well, I'm going to give you an answer, but you're not going to. And, and I, the I, show I, is going to give you this answer, and you're just not going to like it. Yes. And the answer is, he likely thought that the people in the lower six kingdoms, in lower six kingdoms, would think he was nuts, would think he was crazy, wouldn't like it, would would think he was talking gibberish, and and therefore felt as if it might be something that he needed to keep. Here's something I. To address your point, mm -hmm. I think they could do is I think they could have maybe 
um, one of the Targaryens have a conversation with a Stark about it at some point. Like, talk, talk very openly with the North to, about it, but not want to talk to the Lower Six Kingdoms about it. That could, that would make a lot of sense to me. And it could. And you, you, you very pointedly said the Lower Six Kingdoms. And I'm one of the criticisms I mentioned, we previously discussed this, is the idea that it wouldn't be a strange story for him to tell the people of Westeros, because it's one of their foundational myths. The idea that the others came down, that they invaded the entirety of, the West of Westeros, that it required an alliance between the children of the forest and the first men to beat them back, that it led to the building of the wall and everything else, that it is the structural founding myth upon which Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms are based. But, as you are saying, the first men are technically only a still culturally intact population in the north. The children of the forest are lost. The Andals. Lost. Everybody else is the Andals. The, the myths about the others are now poo-pooed as being the same thing as scrumps and... What was it? What Stark, was it? Starks and Grumpkins or yes, whatever. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah, I, th I, I think that there's a, there's a... They could build into this story that Aegon, in going around to the other kingdoms, figured out that there was not a tolerance for this type of talk about things in the dark in the north, magical, etc., etc., sure. in certain parts of Westeros, but, and therefore he wanted to keep... Uh, some level of um, he want he wanted to have like respect and and people wouldn't you, you know, think he was nuts or whatever. The man flying dragons married to his two sisters needed realism to accompany his conquest so that people would believe in it. Rather than the moment you see one of those flying over, you start saying, "I do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies." Sure, yeah, maybe. Yeah, see, I told you we're gonna like it. Like, I know. So it, it like you're gonna see, but, but you have to see what you you do need to do though is draw the distinction between. They're not explaining it, and they're not explaining it the way I like. They to. haven't explained it yet. I understand that, but as we go forward, I will accept. If they give me be, here's because the, the thing, you won't let me get the sentence out, so I can tell you're going to be mad at the show when they do it. So accept it if they go that route. That that is it. That is a, a explanation that they can possibly give. Let me let me tell you why other uh, reasons why I like it. Um, I like it because I think that this is a story about one house, and it is a house that I don't think when you look at the soup to nut story of game of thrones came off particularly well you start you start with a completely batshit crazy king that robert baratheon had to take kick his ass take over you had viserys who was absolutely nuts and got killed by the dothraki and then you had danny who ended up burning all the king's landing and being murdered by john justifiably it's not a great resume no so they needed to create sympathy for house targaryen in some kind of way this also which you said earlier in a sort of poo-poo-y way links to uh, the story of Game of Thrones because we Which know that that was the, the ultimate battle in Game of Thrones or, you know, whatever. You can argue about season eight if you want to. But oh, that was a big battle, right, with, with the others. I like that it creates that sympathy for the rule of House Targaryen because now... For the average viewer, not, not you who's poured over the, the books and, and, and has a preconceived opinions about House Targaryen course, and the yes. whole thing going into it. For the average viewer, now there's some sympathy and there is some um, uh, purpose. You purpose. want these guys, you need these guys to yeah, win. Yeah, yeah, it, it, behind their rule. Yes. Like you're like, yes, I want the Targaryens to rule. And and it, that's where they need the audience to be to enjoy this story. Mm -hmm. Because if the whole time the audience is like, I don't know why the Starks don't just come down and kick these people's ass because I don't fucking like the, you, know, you can't have that. There has to be some sympathy within House Targaryen. So they got boom, right off and yeah. did that, which I thought was pretty cool. I will also say, one of the other reasons that I have some faith in it and feel good about it and I'm probably going to be an apologist for the prophecy as we go forward is because I know that this script and this specific data point was run by George R. R. Martin. Sure. And he was okay with it and signed off on it. I understand that. And that's there are two reasons that I won't be able to dispute it. That is fundamentally true and I can't argue against that. Also, in defense of myself, I am a person that has said before that as long as you give me the sentence, 
I'm willing to go with you. They yep. haven't given me the sentence yet to explain some of the factual discrepancies that I've pointed out. And Rhaegar is one of the really big ones that they got to explain here at some point, but they've got many ways that they can do that. And Aegon keeping it a secret, I almost say the point that you just made in some ways cuts against that, because what you just said works just as well on the small people of Westeros as it does on the audience watching this show, in terms of a further linking supporting point for the Targaryens, because the lords may... Not if they don't believe it, though. The lords may poo-poo it, the small people still believe in Grumpkins. So that's a, diff that's, that's a different but see, issue. That, that's you just stating that, right? I, but uh, but the, the point is, if that's the justification that they go with, with as to why Aegon didn't say this, and, and if they then do, the point would be that the that they, they don't actually believe in it. That, it, that, that it, there's a lot of people... Because I'm pretty sure the Dornish don't believe in it. Like, we could say that with some confidence, it, right? If we are going to turn to the Dornish in terms of what to believe and not believe, sir, we have gone off the deep end. So we've got <laughs> polls, right? There, we, we at least know that there are some people that aren't going to believe this shit. Yeah. And we know some people who absolutely are. So I'm going to feel... I'll tell you this. I feel like we're going to... We can meet in the middle really, really well is if there's a, a conversation between um, a Targaryen at some point who is aware of the prophecy and a Stark at some point about this. And we it becomes very apparent in the conversation that it's been an open conversation between the Starks and the Targaryens the entire yeah, time. Yeah, that if, would be kind of cool. Yeah, if Cregan Stark comes down in the Hour of the Wolf and says, I'm here because there has to be a Targaryen on the throne, fine. I've gotten my sentence. I just need that sentence, and I'm expecting it at some point. I'm making a note on the wall to get my sentence at some point before this show is done. I love that. I do love that they created some sympathy for the Targaryen rule. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, what else can we talk about after the what, prophecy? Here's a bit of a change, which we can go into. How did you feel about the decision made by Viserys with respect to his lady wife in terms of performing what I will call a C-section because we haven't gotten another name in the world of Westeros yet? Because that is an addition. Best, best as I can tell from the books, they just both died. But she, they just they, they died in the process of getting birth. We don't have any idea that effectively, not that he had much of a choice in the matter. She was going to die anyway. But he made the decision to perform a C-section out of a desperate effort to save his son. How do you feel about that decision? Do you feel it's in keeping of the character? But because it isn't uh, at least a additional information we didn't have before. I'm not sure it's a change because I'm not sure that if the king had to make that choice, it would have gotten out such that the people telling the story in this fictional world would even know it yeah. to tell us. And so it might actually be real. I agree. I don't feel it's a change. It is additional information that yes, we didn't yes, have yes. before. So I, I like that they're going to pepper stuff like that in sure. there. That like even, yeah, this, this is kind of letting you know like, hey, you can pour over all of the novellas and, and Fire and Blood and the forthcoming, they're going to do, you remember the World uh, World of Ice and Fire, that book? Of course. They're going to do one about Targaryen Kings that's coming out in November. You nice. can pour over that if you want to. We're still got some new stuff what? for you. I like that they're sending that message. Now, to your, to your question about do I like that edition? Loved it. Mm. Because it continues to add depth to the Viserys character. Because that is probably one of the issues going into this story from going into trying to create this this TV series based on the the, the stories that we have based on the what George R. R. Martin wrote is that that is a very bland character and there's not much going on so they're, they're continuing <laughs> to give him depth I, I really appreciate that George R. R. Martin has said that about his own character it's just like yeah on the page he doesn't come across like much but this actor he has brought some nuance to and him. the storytelling is helping him right because being able to have that scene where he's making that terrible choice uh, was really good and then to have the baby die on top of it I think now Basically, what they've done is, uh, I'm going to go ahead and speak for all of the Game of Thrones fandom. You ready? As you do, please. Um, we all fucking have sympathy for Viserys. And the fact that he's now going to start, you know, I don't know, with Alison Hightower, who they have aged down, by the way, which makes it even more creepy. They've aged her down for this. 
we have this Im- we have this built-in sympathy for Viserys after this terrible scene that we had with him. Yeah, so, have, uh, they, yeah, it's a good choice. Yeah, they aged her down, and they aged I think his wife up because I believe his wife died at like age twenty-three. Yeah. So they've always played a bit because he, lo- Patty Constantine's age. like fifty, <laughs> and uh, I think that um, this the Alison Hightower is like eighteen. So it's. <laughs> Hey, everybody, buckle up. That's going to be fucking creepy. And by the way, if you caught some vibes, I don't know, between maybe two members of the Targaryen family, um, if, you caught, if you caught said vibes, then you'll know what I'm talking about. I can talk about this without spoilers. Um, also buckle up. Uh, so Targaryens do Targaryen We're going to be on a really weird romantic highway with this series. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and warn the audience. You're not going to be, you're not going to be sold on every one of these mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. that we're going to see portrayed. You did bring up one thing I do want to mention that I do really love. And this is something George R. Martin set up probably with expectation that this would be eventually be adapted, but he purposely wrote the, all the novellas, the books with respect to this story through unreliable narrators. Yes. Through narrators that were writing from a particular perspective, sometimes with multiple narrators, if we've, as we've commented on before, various septums versus various, uh, we'll call them mushrooms, um, yeah. in terms of the accounts they provided and how differing they could be. That opens up such delightful ways for this show to be able to tell the histories without the fan base being able to say shit, because we don't know necessarily what happened. We know how people have described it, often not in perfect detail, often with obvious bias, which gives the show its opportunity to provide its own subjective or objective, depending on your point of view, account of the events that occurred without anyone being able to say either way whether they are accurate or not. I agree. I'll tell you one one final thing that I really liked. I'm just trying to like rack my brain of the stuff that I said. I didn't write notes here. We're just kind of going off the fly. Mm-hmm. I loved that we got, it was quick. It was maybe 30 seconds. But we got a shot of Rhaenyra flying her dragon um, and... The people of King's Landing looking up, yeah. freaking out because yeah. they see this shit all the I time. There's tons that, yeah. of there's tons of dragons, and they also are just sort of going about their way. You combine that scene with the scene of the tourney, mm-hmm. and we have a, an image starting to be portrayed of a peacetime. Right, it's something we never saw in Game of Thrones because even I mean, King Bobby B lived in quote peacetime, but he was a fucking wartime king, so it was always sort of chaos. Yes, there was Viserys for all of his faults. He, it's not chaotic rule and so we're kind of seeing King's Landing in the most like sustainable functional way we've ever seen it which is kind of going to be a shock to people and I, I, I really like that that came across in the first episode. I, I like that you mentioned that because that's something we're going to have to see and I'm, I love how the show portrays uh, whether they portray the nuance of this accurate or not is that Viserys is a bad king but it's not because he made the realm worse during his time as king. The realm prospers the realm enjoys years of stability and peace and luxury in a way that is a continuation of his predecessor. It's probably the best time that Westeros sees going through the reign of good King Jaehaerys through Viserys right now. His problem is with respect to the succession. His problem is not maintaining a more active command. I will not be made to choose between my brother and my... That is your fucking job, sir. <laughs> that is the only reason you're on the throne is to be able to control who comes next. And it's so funny. He he screams, I will not be made to choose between my brother and my daughter. And like five minutes later, he's like, I shall choose my daughter. Well, my, my brother said a nasty thing while drunk at a bar. Wait a second. Let's not minimize that. I know. But it's- Air for a day, by the way, is a 
I, I think I've, I feel like I've made a lot of progress in my personal life. You have. Yes. I'm trying to be a more empathetic, compassionate person. You I are. truly wish everybody listening to this piece and happiness from the bottom of my heart, and that is honest and true. I still laughed at air for a day. It was still laughed life. at air for a day. So I have. I've got room to grow. I sincerely hope that I can be that witty while drunk up my ass at a brothel. I just I, that, that 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 is just a, a wonderful turn of phrase, I, right? You there. know what I love that, love that they did when they told that story is that we didn't see him say it. Yeah, we, just we heard. heard the account we heard and we heard the account from the king and he we were able to get that actor the dripping like grieving pain and anger yes. when he said it when he said air and, for a and, day and holding a sword too which is very out of character for I, this guy i feel like it was more of a shock to the audience mm -hmm. that he that damon would say air for a day when we hear it through Viserys voice as opposed to if we actually saw the bar scene. I also like it too that we got to see Damon's reaction when he's called out on it too. Damon is a proud person. Damon is a person that is not... Yo, what did he weakness. say? He said, uh, we all grieve in our own way. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. That was the most Damon way possible answer that question. I mean, he had the good grace to look a bit embarrassed. He had the you good grace to go, I, even I went too far. But that line in terms of explaining it is beautiful. Beautifully in character. Maybe. See, if he had a little bit more humility, he could have said, uh, in my grieving, I got too drunk and I said it. Like, But he's yes. not going to say that because no. he's too proud. That, yeah. Too Again, proud. all kudos to Matt Smith. He really brought the persona <laughs> of Damon to the screen, including his scenes with his niece, which in many ways. I actually, there was one fun addition that I wasn't expecting. Damon's reaction at the funeral. Uh, when they're doing the funeral, when the Lady Queen and the heir for a day uh, are being cremated Ooh. there, there the fact that Damon goes up to his niece and tries to console her and tries to encourage her to take steps to help his brother. I loved the rounding of the character that's portrayed in that moment. Before we got to see the rest of the episode, he is a, he is violent, he is a brute, he's someone that people are generally afraid of, he's a person that feels incredibly entitled. In that moment, he's a member of the family and he's trying to protect his own family. He's trying to support them, he's trying to care for them. Damon is a difficult character to portray because every person's account of him is 100% accurate. He's a man of a thousand faces and a thousand facets. And so being able to show that element of complexity in one person is going to be a trial. And I thought they did a good job in this episode of showing like four faces of the guy before we finished an hour of runtime. And that was one of the ones I liked best. Yeah, well, everybody's scared of him except Sir Kristen Cole. I don't think Sir Kristen Cole's too scared of him. Kristen Cole did okay for himself yeah, in this he episode. Did. He comported himself well and won the favor of uh, Queen Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought I thought that was a cool moment. And I, I think that it, it underscored that. Um, and we got basically the hand tipped right through that scene that he does love his brother and he does support his brother and he's really trying What's to help his, his brother. He's really trying to help his brother. But, you know, and then, and then that makes that resulting scene even more painful because it's obviously painful from the position of Viserys, but we also get the sense that it probably did hurt Damon too. Yes. Um, so Damon probably, I don't know, he's probably just going to go back home like he was told, it, it, uh, hang out with his lovely wife, I think this was the word he uh, said, lovely. Br bronze something, right? Lovely, yeah, lovely yeah, wife yeah, that he has, yeah. and, um, and he'll probably just hang out there for a little while, not well, cause any trouble. I think you would agree, the Vale in the springtime is a lovely place to stay. I mean, I, I, it's, I think you can just enjoy a lovely few months of holiday there and i think he honestly he needs the rest he's a person that loves to be idle they really just you know kick up his heels and not do anything with his time and i think it's going to give him a great opportunity for that i hope correct he says that saddle uh okay look this has been a lot of fun this is our reaction um before we wrap up spencer let's do let's give it a one to ten for premiere for, for premiere for, for premiere okay. for one episode you're just you're not you're not telling me what you think of house of the dragon writ larger saying episode one house of the dragon one to ten what does spencer think 
a solid 8, borderline 8.5. This was a well-done bit of television. This was an impressive start to a new show. It was a confident start to a new show. It was confident. I, I agree with that. I think it paced itself well. It set up its characters well in a way that I'll be curious to speak with more people that aren't familiar with the material about how well they were able to get re-immersed in the world of Westeros. But I, yeah, I was duly impressed with the quality of the production. Oh, one final point I was going to make. I should have made this earlier, is that when they uh, basically greenlit this show... They didn't do it the traditional way. The traditional way is pilot. If we like it, we'll give you nine more episodes. They just gave this ten from Jump Street before a script was written. That's confidence. That right was there. apparent in this. This did not feel like a pilot. This felt yes. like a part of. Mm-hmm. It was. It didn't seem like they were reaching to try to like earn more episodes. They were just getting things started, right. and it was a confident. This start. is the intro. We're yeah. happy you're here. Yeah, absolutely. I give it a nine. I would give it a ten. You know, uh, unbridled optimist that I am, except for. The man, this kind of felt a little formulaic because now we're in a brothel and oh man, we just saw a guy with no face. Like, we don't, come on guys, like, let's not overdo that. Tits and torture, let's, HBO folks. Let's not necessarily overdo that. So I give it a strong nine. So that's a nine and an eight, 8.5 from us. So here at Mangum Talks, we're very happy with the premiere of House of the Dragon episode one. Spencer, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Now, this leaves me excited. I mean, we've talked before about the nervousness when it came to coming back to Westeros. We can, we can debate season eight as we had to the cows come home, but... This show has a lot riding on it. It has a lot of expectations and a lot of nerves associated with people that love the world but are worried about how it can be portrayed. This gave me a bit of confidence going forward that this is a show made by people that love the material, that love to be back in this world and want to do it right. And it leaves me optimistic about what we'll get to see next. Awesome. Glad you feel that way. I do too. I'm, I'm hyped. I'm glad to be back in the world of Westeros. I'm glad to be back doing podcasts about the world that George R. R. Martin has created, Song of Ice and Fire, with you, Spencer. This is going to be a lot of fun here on Pot of the Dragon. We will be with you in about three days, about, about the Tuesday, Wednesday time frame. We're going to do a full pod. That's going to be about two hours where we do our segments. We go through beat by beat what happened in the episode. Mm-hmm. We do best line. We do the whole thing, the whole rigmarole that you've come to expect here at Mangum Talks. And we will repeat that formula nine more weeks. That's right, hard workers that we are. We're going to do a reaction pod on Sunday night. That will be up ready for you Monday morning. And then we will do a more thorough review later in the week as we go. I know that there is a lot of review material out there for House of the Dragon. So the fact that you chose to come to us and listen to us means a lot. We really appreciate you listening. And we'll be back with you in about three days for a beat-by-beat review of Episode 1. Thanks for listening. Until next time.